Assalamu alaikum. We're back. This is Rahim. Thank you so much for this incredible surah. Um, I think people are going to need some serious time to process it, but it's just, I mean, the, the social impact, the just the idea that every single person matters is so beautiful. Um, alhamdulillah. And I'm just always so grateful that I just feel like I've never heard anything like this, and I um, and just beyond grateful that we are learning here now together and receiving this beautiful knowledge. So thank you so much. Um, okay, Jana, would you like to start? Sure. Okay. First of all, I thank you so much. Um, I have two questions. The first is, is there a connection between the nine signs um, of the story of Sayyidina Musa and the nine individuals in Thamud. No. Um, so that's the first one. And then the second question that I have is that, and I really don't want to presume to have like a insight that, <laughs> you know, if it's nothing, it's nothing. But um, for Ayah 82, um, and you said that, you know, uh, a deb that doesn't have to necessarily be a calamity or a beast, um, it just has to be something that treads on the earth and that it's going to come out of the earth. And then earlier, we hear the story of Suleiman, where the ants um, make a noise and they like speak something, and only Suleiman can hear them, and then they go into the earth. And so we have an understanding of them as something, before knowing the rest of the surah, that it was an insignificant, like they're insignificant indi like individually, and they went into the earth for safety and to rebuild and to go into the earth. Is it possible that the connection between that portion of the surah and then ayah 82, the thing that comes out of the earth and it causes a ruckus or it causes a big change or something larger, does that have a connection between the nemed that went into the earth and then all of a sudden we can actually hear them when they're coming out, where the insignificant now becomes significant? Mm. Um, so those are my two questions. Can you paraphrase? Um, so the the first the first question whether the nine um, signs uh, of Moses Salam, could be related to the nine rot of Saleh. Uh, I actually never thought of that. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I've always taken taken it literally as nine signs, nine afflictions that befall the Egyptians. Um, um, and nine powerful people who corrupted. But I mean, it is an, an interesting parallel, um, nine and nine. The, the second question um, about the, the ants who they, they go into the earth for safety and then the dabba uh, that is mentioned later on, could it emerge from the earth? I mean, what's really interesting is that so many of the reports um, that are transmitted 
are about the Dabba, uh, talk about some type of something that actually does emerge from the earth. I mean, in most of these reports, they're, they're, it's like a form of a, like a worm. Um, and I've just always, because I, I the, these reports are, are Israelite traditions, they, they, they're paraphrasing uh, stories from the Talmud, mostly. Uh, I've always discounted them, but the idea itself is very interesting. Um, I mean, the, but I have never thought of it. I mean, the, the idea itself is very interesting. Um, what, what's very, there, there is the, I'm trying to remember where in the Quran, but I, the, the, there's a reference in the Quran um, about the in reference to the idabba in the context of idabba that could be on, on the earth or even in the samawat which is rather fascinating because um you know, Debba is literally something that treads, and typically it's on the earth, but it could also be anything that exists. You know what? What? So. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know. It it would be a fascinating idea to to explore. But I'm not sure. I mean, it, it knowing the traditions that are out there and that they're all very mythological and they're all very fantastical and they all come from the Israelite tradition. I don't know how to resolve it, um, unless someone does a more comprehensive study of the Quran as to the word Dabba and all the time that the word Dabba is mentioned in the Quran and all the possible meanings uh, that might yield some interesting um, uh, might inter yield some interesting results I'm looking at the word Dabba, so it, it mostly Dabba is mentioned in the context of the earth. Umam in Dabba, I from Ard, so... Uh, Allah created every Dabba from water, Wallahu khalqa kulla Dabba min ma'a. Um, but it says Dabba, akhrajna lahum Dabba min al-ard. So Idabba from the earth that's going to speak to them. I don't know. It's very fascinating. Um, yeah. 
يا سي سورة الشورى ومن آياته خلق السماوات والأرض وما بث فيهما من دابة. So we created the heavens and the earth and what he what God created in the heavens and in the earth من دابة في السماوات والأرض وما بث فيهما من دابة. So this would seem to indicate that Adabah could also be something in the heavens, um, which I've always thought is very interesting in, in terms of uh, that would take us to the, like UFOs and things like that. Um, because Allah, there, I mean, Allah could create the web that were created that are not on earth but elsewhere arguably I think yeah I don't know okay heavy duty question okay uh, uh -oh. <laughs> oh unless uh, does anyone else have one here before we take one or is it, is it uh, your question or interactive? No, interactive. So I should, let's start in here first. Go for it, Shannon. Shannon, you Not necessarily. <laughs> Since uh, Surah Hijr, I've been fascinated by conversation that shaitan has with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in which he's lamenting his annoyance and blaming Allah for his um, misguidance and says the same way that you misguided me I'm going to misguide your creation and make uh, make the path or make make it look onto them you know um, pleasing or something nice and I can't remember if it's in the same surah or elsewhere that it says something along the lines that I will make their amand their um, you know, actions seem fair or yeah, just yeah. and again this shows itself numerous times in a nem um, once in I mean it, it happens a second time in verse 24 again Zainan lahum shaitan amanuhum uh, and then even before that, but it, the thing that struck me was earlier, and I can't find the notes exactly which verse. Um, earlier in the surah, yeah, here it is, verse 4. Um, in verse 4, here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who is saying saying that I will make amaluhum zayna. I will make it zayna lahum amaluhum. It, it, um, I think it raises a question about the seemingly odd relationship between shaitan and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that does Allah use, yet continue to use shayateen in his service um, in some type of way despite them even being aware 
that okay since this happened you you still you think that you are you know individual that can make its own decisions but yet you're still under my employ and under my employ I send either tests of misguidance mm -hmm. towards my people or if you are already in misguidance then I can continue to misguide you with you know even your own personal um, you know deceiver uh, on a long term and that kind of <clears throat> I'm shy to even say this bit but I was thinking about that in the terms of in, in verse 82 and even the previous a few verses previous in which it's speaking about um, you, it will not you know their guidance will not avail those who are deaf and blind and dead and this sort of thing uh, and then the again the mention of the Daba and this kind of thing so I was wondering whether they <clears throat> there may be a connection between all of these that in fact what it is from the Ard maybe is not necessarily from the Ard but rather it's from the path that was adorned to look you know fair unto them that you are in essentially building your own shaitan that will continue to lead you into you know punishment now and you know eternally essentially uh Anyway, to paraphrase that, <laughs> or give us the essence of the question. Um, no, I'm not sure how to paraphrase that. Uh, I mean, 82. So, it's, it's vague enough to incorporate or possibly incorporate um, yeah, I mean, it, I'm not sure if, if if a connection can be made to anything satanic or demonic. Um, but it is vague enough or broad enough to um, incorporate anything that we don't have a frame of reference for, uh, that comes out of the earth and that speaks to human beings. That, that's as much as really we we can say uh, or that it is now comes out of the earth could could be man-made so that Allah allowed it to take place or Allah inspired human beings to make it or it could be something directly just made by God without the mediation of human beings um, the language would, would bear both. The the early reference in, in for because this goes back to the whole uh, uh, every time the the Zayanna or Zayana is mentioned in the Quran or 
nearly every time it's zayyana shaytanu lahum amalahum devil does the zayyana is to make something look good so it's shaytan that comes and makes the the acts of people look good to them except for one ayah where it says um zayyana lahum or zuyina lahum su'a amalihim that their evil deeds were made to look good for them um, okay so then here where it's not shaitan that does the tazyin of the amal it's not the shaitan who's doing make a deed look good and it's not something that has the descriptive term bad deeds that were made to look good it simply refers to um, that their deeds were made to look good because of that because here we don't have the intervening factor of shaitan who's beautifying the act or there is no the qualifier su amalihim which would mean evil deeds it simply says that their deeds were made to look good so that gave rise to that debate that we talked about whether it's talking about that god allowed them to understand what good deeds are and they chose to forgo that or whether God is saying that um, their evil deeds God allowed them to see their evil deeds as bad but if it's referring to evil deeds then why isn't say was it why isn't it saying why doesn't it say su'a'amalihim which is typically the Quranic style that the qualifier that it's evil doing not just um, but but the, the, I think the point you're raising is sort of an, a larger um, uh, theological point whether ultimately <clears throat> even when shayateen act they act under Allah's sovereignty so in in other words that in fact even when shayateen lead people astray they are still acting according to the divine plan um, and that's a that's a bigger much bigger debate uh, a much bigger issue because that has to do with the whole notion of um, free will and to to what extent there there is predetermination of uh, acts 
whether in fact God um, um, whether God simply allows <clears throat> evil deeds to take place or God creates the evil deeds that take place. And, and that's a much larger debate and a much more a much bigger thing. But my position is that God doesn't create evil deeds, which is not not the orthodox Muslim position in the contemporary age. Um, but that but it's a very big topic because then we, we'd have to get into the whole issue of the relationship between God and Khalq and Khalq al-Ashiyah and Khalq al-Af'al which is, I mean, a much bigger philosophical issue. Um, in the, so uh, Zakah is mentioned in verse 3 um, I had thought that my understanding was that zakat was a uh, a requirement or legislated as the institution until Medina. Is this referring to that, or is it kind of like the more broader charitable acts that you also mentioned? Um, and then verse uh, sixty-two, um, I I mean. When after going through your tafsir and then reading this, it sounded like the story of, of from Musa to Sulaiman. Musa, you mentioned in the beginning, is the muttar. He's the, you know, he's in a state of desperation. Um, and then, the Khalifa being Sulaiman. Um, is that correct? And then is this also maybe speaking to the Prophet and his own ummah and um, future generations? Um, the answer to the first question about the zakah and the reference in, in the early on in the surah to the institution of zakah, the, the, this is a, a, I think it's quite clear that the uh, early references to the zakat in Mecca was a broad reference. It was, and in fact, I mean, in most cases, when the Quran talks about zakat, it is not talking about the legal definition of zakat, but talking more about the moral definition of zakat. The, the, which includes the sadaqah and in, includes charitable giving well beyond the required minimum amount. Because remember that that two and a half percent on mayahul uh, al and so on is a minimum. That's just the minimum account. The, 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 um, it, it is not what would put a person in in close to Allah, it is just what would prevent a person from being 
from committing sin. Uh, and a lot of Muslims, especially in the modern age, confuse this point. They, they think that they are actually coming close to Allah just by paying the minimum zakah. The minimum zakah is exactly that. It's just the minimum zakah so that you, you know, you, you haven't violated the fard, the um, because it is a fard. Um, but it's not what, uh, it's not taqarrub lillah. It's just the, the, there's a huge difference between ada al-fard and al-taqarrub. Um, or being um, drawing closer to Allah through uh, charitable giving, and uh, the biggest proof of that is the the, the, the Sunnah of the companions of the Prophet I mean, not a single. We we don't actually have any of the narratives that are told about charitable Sahaba is limited to the legal zakah. Um, they always go well beyond the, the, the legal zakah. And the Prophet himself was the best example of that. And um, I don't know at, at what point in Islamic history Muslims just got so twisted in their thinking that they started thinking that the, the legal zakah is, is somehow all that's expected of them, uh, which is very minimal. I mean, two two and a half percent over what you don't use, and, and you save for over for a year or over, um, is um, is very minimal. Um, uh, the. The second, oh, the second question, um, yeah, the sole thing about, um, was, was Musa a Muttar? Um, and it's interesting because that, that actually, there are some theological discussions on this because... Sorry, what's the English transition about? Uh, the, was Musa, uh, um, a is someone who has like, an, a, um, confronts a situation of necessity and like is in desperate, desperate condition and praying to God for, for help um, during their desperation. And you know, on the one hand, yes, he is a Muttar because he, he was desperate but the, on the other hand, what, what Moses received was well beyond what, what, what Muttar would receive. I mean, he, um, he went looking for some fire for his family, but what was stored for him is prophethood. Um, and Allah speaking to him uh, directly, which is, you know, um, so I, I don't know if it's if if Moses would fall in the category of a, of that type of a Torah, but I think there the what is clear from Surah Al Naml is the larger point that 
And I, and I think that's maybe what you're, you're getting at, is that from the desperate situation that Moses is, is in to um, an istikhlaf or to actually in, inheriting um, the earth or becoming God's viceroys in the in the form that Suleiman we saw with Suleiman, it it takes many micro steps, and but micro steps done with in 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 the right direction, with the right ethical fortitude. Um, And it's as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, you know, saying Allah could be with you from, from the most basic level where you are calling upon God to help you during desperate times to actually to, to exactly happen with Muslims where they, they become a major force, a dominant force. Um, but that requires a commitment to all these micro steps that are done with due diligence and deliberation and commitment. Um, and I think that's the whole point of sort of number. Any more questions in here? Okay, now I'm gonna go to the heavy question. Okay, I know this is a heavy and difficult subject, so if you prefer not to address it at this time, that is fine. I've looked at Islam Awakened, which I think is a website, um, which gives a large amount of translations, looks like 30 or more, all kinds of English translations. And from the Arabic that I do know, the wording does not seem to indicate that sodomy is the issue per se, but rather the males preferring other males instead of women for sexual desire and to express their lust. Nothing of sodomizing women or children is mentioned in any of the verses, in any of the versions of Lot in the Quran. It seems to be a repeated theme of men desiring or practicing lust with men, whether aggressively or not seems to be an additional aspect. With all due respect and trying very hard here to keep in mind cultural and social bias, I'm struggling to see how and where these verses are not unequivocally against homosexuality in the people of Lot. Earlier in the halakha, you had said that there is a danger for any individual or community to become self-reverential and fit the Quran to their own earth and ada. Is there a danger of that in this case where we are in an era of trying to rightfully foster compassion and mercy as Islam requires us to do towards all human beings, towards the LGBTQ community, but simultaneously trying to figure out how to do that when the Quran demonstrates a heteronormative moral and ethical standard in sexual acts within the confines of marriage? Um, the Aggression and Rape Act seems to be very limited to Hadith, similar to the second coming of Jesus. Um, so does that take precedence in interpretation or the Arabic, which seems to emphasize same-sex lust among the men and even Lot's wife supporting it? Um, in the context of al-Namul, uh, among all five stories, could the example of Lot's people not simply indicate how humans that refuse to accept the God-given rules and honor of doing their part, human ants, as you said, um, but that, ra but rather outrightly rebel in any shape or form against what God has enjoined are destined for his wrath. I mean, you, you, this is an issue of interpretation again. Um, 
so one, it's not the issue of shahwa, um, because if if you're talking about desire, desire, if you're talking about what the actual language of the Quran is. It, إِنَّكُمْ لَتَأْتُونَ الرِّجَالَ شَهْوَةً مِنْ دُونِ النِّسَاءِ So, مِنْ دُونِ النِّسَاءِ So it's not إِنَّكُمْ لَتَأْتُونَ الرِّجَالَ شَهْوَةً That you desire men. But you desire men exclusively. So, if again, if you're doing literal interpretation, because the question implies, oh, you know, should the, the, the typical uh, t- traditional type of question about, oh, you know, do we read the Quran literally, and and do we look at history? Do we look at evidence? Do we look at circumstances? Is is the Quran its own? The language of the Quran its own moral code? So, okay, so let, let's go with that for a bit. So, one, Lut is a prophet, and if you're going to talk about studying the Quran comprehensively, comprehensively, then you have to understand, you have to see what the Quran says about Lut in his relationship to Ibrahim and the prophecy of Ibrahim. And the fact that Lut is inviting these people to not just abstain from shahwa dunin nisa, ta'atuna rijal shahwa tandunin nisa, to the exclusion, but that he's also inviting them to follow him as a prophet. So is Lut the, the prophet of heterosexuality? That's it. I, I don't think, I don't know of any theologian who's ever said that. So that's one issue that you have with the literal approach. So, you know, was up with the Lut the first prophet of sexual orientation solely? I am sent by God to lead you to correct sexual orientation. I don't think I don't know of any theologian who said that because the language itself, the Quran, the text of the Quran, doesn't lead to that. So we know. That is not just sexual orientation. So that's one. Second, تَأْتُونَ الرِّجَالِ شَهْوَةً مِنْ دُونِ النِّسَاءِ You have a tri- a group of, you have a nation. Now, in the sources, we, the Quran doesn't tell us how many, what was the population of the people of Lot. So, you know, you don't want to step go beyond the Quran. So, you know, then we, we're, we're stuck. We don't know if they were 100 people. We don't know if they were 10,000 people. We don't know if there are 100,000 people, which is, wouldn't work. Because even prayer and fasting and zakah wouldn't work if we don't go beyond the Quran. We need the sunnah. Because if you follow the literalist approach that people who love to pretend that they're literalists do, you're going to end up with us not knowing how to pray, not knowing how to fast, not knowing how to praise zakah, not knowing how to do hajj, not knowing how to do anything. So we don't. 
simply limit ourselves to the text of the Quran in any situation, except when we want to, to condemn homosexuals, or to get on the case of women, or to do something that we want to do. So let's be very clear, that, that's a very disingenuous tactic. Very disingenuous, because we don't do it. No jurist trains just to interpret the Quran and not anything beyond the Quran. Because it wouldn't work. It would not work. Not even Shahada would work. So all these Quranic, oh, let's do literal, they're very disingenuous. But okay, so let's go a step. So now, what? His archaeological evidence? Well, the archaeological evidence of Sodom would indicate that there were not less, not less than 30,000 people. Probably much more. But according to the text of the Quran, what is the percentage of homosexuals in any normal population? 4%? 5 5%? 10%? So you have a people where all the males go after men and they're not interested in marriage. That's why I say homosexuality was an ideology. Sodomy. What is the what is the, the do we have any an example? Yes, we we know that in Greek culture, in, in historical studies, that in Greek culture and in Roman culture, there was a cultural institution where people would actually practice sodomy as a cultural practice. So is it reasonable to, because of our study of history, to say, well, maybe the people of Lot were like the Greeks and like the Romans, but those who are disingenuously want to interpret the Quran as a self-referential book, they want us to ignore history. They'll say, no, 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 don't, don't, don't look at history. Okay, so then tell me. What do we do about a people who, subhanAllah, Allah create all the men, sodomies. They sodomize. And they're not interested in other women. Do you know of any nation where Allah has created 100% of the men, sodomites, homosexual sodomites? Because, again, because you're saying it's only interest in men, not sodomizing women, not sodomizing children, not sodomizing strangers, not sodomizing... It's just... So they're only interested in men. How would that happen? So you're, at, you're telling me the Quran is describing something we've never seen in history. But if that's the case, then it doesn't, then it doesn't apply to any other situation. Because we don't know of any other situation where we've seen the people of Lot, like the people of Lot. When repeatedly, when Lot tells them, here's my daughter's, and they're not interested in the daughters. So they have a principal disinterest in women. Now, let's pretend that the people of law were actually like that. There were people who had no interest in women and only interested in men. 
Well, that that's uh, that's that's so unlike anything we've seen that again we can't rule by analogy to any other situation. If we're doing this, you know, disingenuous literalist interpretation of the Quran, what does it mean to say, "Oh, well, that comes from Hadith"? So now we don't like Hadiths? When Hadith is actually giving us historical understanding of things that are referenced to in the Quran in broad lines, now we say, and do we want to apply the same principle to the Prophet? So let's take out Battle of Hunayn. Let's take out Battle of Banu Qunayn Let's take out everything that the Hadith told us about Uhud. Everything that the Hadith tells us about Badr. And let's make Badr and Uhud just referential within the text of the Quran. What's going to be left? So my point is, is that people who tell me, no, no, you know, it's, it, it's just, a, they, they themselves has an ideological project. It's either they want to suspect the Quran of the intellectual project that they have because of the weakness of their own faith. They have an issue with in Islam or they have a problem with homosexuality that they want to project into the text of the Quran. Homosexuality itself, as an institution, it's a modern thing because in the Islamic tradition, it was assumed that all women can desire men and women equally. And all men can desire men and women equally. In the culture I grew up in, it was, you, they told you, don't show your aura be, be, be in front of any man because it is normal and natural for even the most heterosexual man to see your aura and desire you. And we were raised with the idea that you shouldn't look at the aura of little children because shaitan could come to you, even as a heterosexual man, and tell you, look, this child is very desirable. It is only when I came to the United States that I learned that, no, those who desire sodomy are a category, and those who don't desire sodomy are a category. That's, that's Western culture. That's Western culture projected onto the world. But if you read history, if you study history, you discover that that's, no, that's not the way the world has functioned most of humanity. People didn't go around categorizing themselves as, oh, uh, my sexual preference is this, and my sexual preference is that. We're, you know, this is, this is commodity to capitalism. I like Slurpees. I like ice cream. I like meat. I like chicken. That's not the way humanity works. You could be the most heterosexual person. You go to prison. Your longing for companionship turns you homosexual. Not homosexual, meaning you fall in love with a man and you have sex with a man. Men in prison, when they get raped long enough, 
they come out not sure of their sexuality anymore. Instead of Muslims sitting there and whining and complaining, why, they, why don't they study science and produce their alternative narratives that defies colonial paradigms? That's my point. I remember when I was very young, this is embarrassing, but now that I'm annoyed, so I'm gonna actually tell the story. My parents got the bright idea, I don't know why, they wanted me to have a proper civilized education. So they went to the great expense of sending me to a school called Gordonston in Scotland. And, oh, this is the school where Prince Charles went. He hated it and dropped out. But this is where, like, the sons of kings in the Middle East and queens and, you know, everything. So, but we could only afford for me to go for a summer. So I just spent the summer in Gordonston. So I go to Gordonston. Of course, I hated it. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's, it's a, you know, old boys' school and, and I, you know, it's like everything's so British, and you go in a yacht, and who cares about a yacht? And the food was horrible. The, 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 every, I couldn't understand what the heck they're talking about all the time. But I remember I had a kid with me who was older than me. He was 14 years old, and he was Saudi. I'm not picking on Saudis. I'm just, that's just a fact. And there was a young kid who was 12 years old who was very good looking, very white, looks, had very nice hair. And I would do my salah. I was very like straight and narrow, no girls, no, no, Playboy magazines, as you know, when of course the Arabs go to the Middle East, the first thing they do is like they pay, they go, go nothing. I was very straight to know. But I found out that this Saudi kid who was, if you called him homosexual, he would beat you to death, paid that 12 year old kid 300 pounds to have sex with him. And I knew that this kid, this Saudi kid, prayed. He would pray Jamal with me. But, so I was crushed. I was very young, and I was crushed. Like, how could you do that? And he said, I couldn't resist. I said, what do you mean you couldn't resist? That's a boy. He said, you want to tell me, you want to swear on the Quran, you weren't aroused by him? Don't you see how pretty he is? And that stayed with me. That man today is married and he has four kids. And I met him and I asked him 20 years later if he ever had sex with another man or boy, another male. And he swore to me that he never did. So I asked him why. He said because he was very exciting, very attractive. I said, are you homosexual? He said, no, I'm not. And anyone who says I'm homosexual, I'll beat the heck out of him. But you know what? 
That was normal in the culture I grew up in. I know a lot, when I was a young kid, when I was a boy, I know a lot of men who were married and very heterosexual who made passes at me. And I knew as a young boy that part of my job was to protect myself. We didn't have these categories. You're homosexual, you're straight, you're this, you're that, you're this. So, and I'm not going to concede that there's anything wrong with that. Because that seems much more natural than the crap that I encounter in, in the West. Alhamdulillah. Well, the bad news is we're out of time. I didn't really want to end on that. Although that was great. Thank you. Alhamdulillah. Uh, no one can say that we don't take on controversial topics here. <laughs> well, that, that's why, that's why you know, uh, uh, no one will ever donate the money <laughs> to to buy my time, so I can finish this project. Exactly oh, no. because you ask me questions like that. It's your fault. No, I'm proud. I'm, I'm proud that we. Look, I mean, someone, people feel comfortable asking questions like that, and they know that they're going to get the truth. Or at least they're going to get, you know, okay. your unfiltered response, which is extremely <laughs> valuable, alhamdulillah. So thank you for the question, and thank you for the answer. And I think on that note, alhamdulillah, um, thank you for being with us, and inshallah, we will see you guys on Tuesday. And we are doing tarawiyah. We, we try oh, oh, to do yeah. tarawiyah every night live streamed on YouTube um, around 10, we shoot for 10.30. Sometimes we get a little bit um, held up with other things, but if you subscribe to our channel and you have your email on, as soon as we go live, you get a notification that we've gone live, so you'll know that we're on and we're, we're praying. So, inshallah, um, join us. Join us for and, uh, Yeah, we'll, so, we'll see you soon. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.